Yeah, I think, uh, you know, collectively, not just uh, our church or not me as a pastor, but lots of pastors, lots of congregations, not just in our region, but across the country, across the world, we've been holding our breath over the last few months, um, not really sure, like, hey, how is, how is this going to go? And uh, of course, uh, as it relates to finances, we're extremely encouraged, at least over the summer, we saw uh, a little bounce back, and we've exceeded our, um, I know, kids, don't you want to hear this? Talking about the budget is great. We just want to finish the year well. But the rest of you, including adults, want to go with Pastor Angela. So let me invite our middle school students to head back for confirmation. Any of our kids? Uh, is there anything else that I should know about the morning? Awesome. Great. Kids, head on back. Yes, and uh, this, this month, the last month, October, um, you know, I'm not sure who created Pastor Appreciation Month, obviously a pastor, um, <laughs> but I really enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the notes that, uh, that I receive. You know, Angela and also our staff receives some of those. Thank you for all of the gift cards and coffee cards. We feel so appreciated, so loved. Uh, thanks for taking the time to stop, uh, especially from Corey and I, for stopping at Rio Bravo to get those, those gift certificates. Um, that takes, I mean, it's, I'm so, if I can't get online and like do it, then I never remember. And so whenever um, someone makes an effort like that, that I mean, that's, that's really special. Thank you. Last week, got a few photos that I want to share with you. This, this looked a lot different in here. We kind of hosted our second annual trunk or treat inside because it was still raining cats and dogs outside. And I don't know if you knew this, but Tom Cruise was here last week. There he is in all of his glory. Uh, we got a few. You can cycle through some of these pictures. Some mad scientists right here. Next one is Chick-fil-A. I mean, Chick-fil-A just stopped by. Um, keep going here. Mr. Coach. That was a pretty fun game that they had set up, uh, if any of you were able to play that. I think there might be one more. Oh, yeah, and then there's this guy. <laughs> he was here, too. Um, this is just an opportunity for us to have fun, both have fun, but it's a, it's a, it's a perfect invite uh, to any family, any neighbors, friends in your neighborhood to, to come and trick-or-treat where it's dry. And uh, I stopped taking picture after. This was like I was making my way around right at the start, but then it got busy. And so I, I didn't get any pictures of like when people were inside here and kids were trick-or-treating, but it was really, really fun. So thanks for those of you that were able to participate and make that such a good time. We're in the midst of a sermon series called A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. And the opening of the Gospel of Matthew contains three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, of Jesus' teaching. And many people believe that, that this, you know, kind of concentration of Jesus' teaching is like the best of the best. And it's not just Christians who say this. I mean, it's also people who are outside of the church, folks like Karl Marx, folks like Leo Tolstoy, uh, Gandhi. They all pointed to this teaching as Jesus's. This is really powerful and profound. And of course, it's inspired generation after generation of Christ followers as well. And so we've been working our way through the opening section, which is called the Beatitudes. And Jesus would have crafted this opening section to be catchy, to be easily memorized. And uh, he would have crafted them for maximum impact. And these answer the question that many of us often wonder. 
Who is it that lives the good life? Who's living the good life? Well, according to Jesus, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God a lot. Like so much though, it's like one of those topics that's almost hiding in plain sights when you read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the accounts of Jesus' life. And he means, of course, it's the comprehensive rule of God that's breaking into our world, into our time and space. And God is doing that one life at a time. You see, the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. That's the kingdom Jesus began to establish. And so his teaching here in Matthew 5 begins with a list that we named the Beatitudes. And they're descriptive of a person in whom the gospel, his good news, has taken root. This is a person who's in sync with Jesus' vision of God's new world order. They're blessed. They're blessed. We're happy. You could translate that. The word in Greek is makarios. It refers to the highest type of well-being possible for human beings. Makarios, blessed are you, happy are those. That's also the term the Greeks used for the kind of blissful existence of their gods. You think of the Marvel superheroes, right? They're just a little bit above us. That was the Greek idea of, of, of deity. And they would have thought that, oh, the life that they live, that's the blessed life. They live the good life, the happy life. So who's living the good life in Jesus' world, in God's kingdom? I don't know. When I look around outside, I think everybody but me. Amen? When am I going to get to live the good life? And so we often assume that the people living the good life in our world are the people who are really, really good looking, right? They're the people who are well-connected, super influential, and of course, the ultra-wealthy, the people who have been materially successful. They're the people who are blessed, But according to Jesus, it's not who we think. According to Jesus, the people who are blessed are the spiritual zeros, you know, the poor in spirit. Uh, It's the folks who mourn, who've been deeply, uh, experienced deep loss and are in touch with the hurting world around them. According to Jesus, the blessed life is being lived by those who are strong enough to be humble, the meek. They're the ones who long to be right in their relationship with God and others. They're the people who actually care for others around them. They're the merciful. They're the pure in heart, the people who get their inside world and their outside world put right. Jesus says these people are blessed. They're the ones who are happy. God is smiling upon them. You know, whenever we hear these beatitudes, this blessedness, I I ask almost every week, like, how do you hear this? How do you hear this? Um, It's easy to misunderstand, like, oh, those are the things that we're supposed to aspire to be. Like, oh, I guess Jesus wants me to mourn? Like, I'm supposed to be a really unhappy person. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you haven't missed out. 
If you find yourself here, actually, this is the, this is the, these are the people where God's kingdom breaks in, his reality breaks into their life. It's less about a goal to strive toward. It's more about a starting point in your journey following him. So if you identify more as the kind of person that Jesus just described, the good life hasn't passed you by. On the contrary, God is at work. His kingdom is for a person like you. You'll be comforted. You'll be shown mercy. You'll inherit the earth. You'll receive justice. You might even see God. And so this is why Jesus' Beatitudes is something that we should turn to over and over again as a reminder to, I haven't missed out on the good life. In fact, if I'm even wondering, like, am I living the good life? Did I miss out on it? The kingdom of God is for such a person as you, for such a person as me. And so today we're going to look at uh, almost the, the second to the last one here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for Jesus says they'll be called the children of God. So Jesus probably had a very specific idea in mind here for peacemakers. Peacemakers, right? And I'm aware that, you know, through the years, there's different things that have been called peacemakers that you're like, that's anything but. Like the Colt 45 that won the West, right? It's called a peacemaker. Peacemakers, it's kind of like the opposite of what we'd associate with that. But it kind of fits, actually. We know that one of uh, Jesus' closest disciples was Simon. Actually, there were two. Simon Peter, Jesus called Peter. And what did Peter do when Jesus got arrested? He's kind of a man of action. He took a sword and he cut off somebody's ear. And then there was the other Simon. Do you remember him? He was called the Zealot. The Zealot. So I just imagine in the Hollywood action sequence here of Jesus being arrested that there was just a big brouhaha happening, right? That's not how it was. But the movie version would be like that. You got Simon Peter, you got Simon the Zealot. I mean, these guys are ready to go. And the Zealots, they were known in and around Israel at the time of Jesus. They were kind of vigilante groups. They were extreme nationalists, willing to do anything possible to make an independent Jewish state. This is politics on a whole new level. They were willing to risk life and limb and kill or whatever they needed to do to make it happen, the kingdom of God. And so here's Jesus, who's purported to be the Messiah, the anointed king, always talking about the kingdom. Do you see the attraction there for someone like Simon the Zealot? And Jesus wasn't exactly a peacekeeper, at least a peacekeeper as we might imagine it. You think about it, Jesus was often engaged in conflict. Jesus argued a lot with the religious establishment, with the Pharisees. At one point, he entered the temple courts. He created quite a scene, overturning tables and benches, grabbing a whip, driving people around, getting rid of the money changers. This was justice on an extreme scale. These were people profiteering from the worship of God. It disgusted Jesus. Once he even said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, he said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He's quoting the prophet Micah. Does that sound like someone who's a peace 
keeper? That sounds like someone who's trying to stir it up. Of course, this was hyperbole, exaggerated talk from Jesus. He's indicating how he himself would prove to be a very divisive figure, even among family members, because he deserves total allegiance. Jesus says things like that because he's saying, you're going to have to choose whether to follow me or follow the rest of the world. You pick. And it wasn't just in Jesus' time. It's always. People have always had to choose. Is it Jesus or not Jesus? But I wonder how people like Simon the Zealot heard those comments. You know, people absolutely love folks who mix it up, stir it up, whether it's on Twitter or otherwise, right? We like the firebrand, the people who aren't afraid to say it how it is. They get the most media attention of anyone in our world. I mean, you look at just the current election cycle, right? I mean, talk about taking the low road. And I, and I realize it's no one's fault. It's always being paid for, for, for this, by this other nefarious group that's out there slinging mud or saying things about the other side. But if your strategy is to basically scare people into voting for you or your platform or anger people so much that they vote against the other person, what's that say about our society? We're a bunch of angry, scared people. What effect does that have on us and our kids? I would have thought, oh, it's nothing at all. I just kind of tuned that out. It's part of the background noise. Until I had a conversation with one of our kids this week. The conversation went like this. It was something to the effect that, you know, our generation has really bleak prospects. What? What makes you think that? And then he they went through a list. And I thought, wow, all that stuff that I thought was background noise maybe isn't background noise to our kids. No one likes peacekeepers. You're thinking, of course they do, but not really. We want people to mind their own business. I mean, if you're mad enough to take a swing at someone, do you appreciate the person who steps in and pushes you away? Probably not at first, because all you want to do is hurt someone. I know, no one gets that mad, right? You know, if you're mad enough to post something nasty about someone else on social media, do you appreciate the person who Twitters back? That's not very nice. Or maybe you should rephrase or dial down the rhetoric here. Maybe you should retract your statement. Do we appreciate those people? No. Because it feels good to get physical. It feels good to verbally abuse someone else. It feels good to drain that pus bag and drop it on someone else, right? At least it does for a second. That's the empty nature of anger. And when we indulge, uh, when we act out on our anger, the feel-good piece is pretty fleeting. Whether it's the UN, whether it's our police officers, no one appreciates peacekeepers until you need one. But, you know, peacekeeping and peacemaking have subtle differences in the mind of Jesus. You know, in my mind, peacekeeping is what happens as a, it's a form of, oh, it's a, when it's about to get real, people show up and divide, get the, get the sides divided, right? This is, we've got to keep the peace. 
We've got to keep the peace. We can't let this boil over. It's going to get ugly, and then that's the point of no return. That's peacekeeping. Show up at the last moment, minimize the damage. But in this scenario, the issues are really never addressed. And that's not what Jesus had in mind when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Did he? Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, when you read the Bible, uh, it's kind of hard to miss out on the whole concept idea of peace. I mean, it's literally dripping with it. And there's two main words that the Bible uses to, that we render, you know, from Hebrew or Greek into English. And the two words are shalom, that's the Hebrew word for peace. And the Greek word, you may have never ever heard of this because it doesn't roll off your tongue quite like shalom does. But the Greek word for peace is arene. Starts with an E, arene. And these two words are used interchangeably. And by that I mean that about the time of Jesus, uh, I don't, you know, not a lot of people actually spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek at this time and Aramaic and some other languages. And so there was a need to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so that the Israelites could read it or know it. So it's called the Septuagint. And about that time, about the time of Jesus, this came out. And every time the translators uh, came to the word shalom in the Hebrew, they rendered it as arene in the Greek. Even though the concept of peace is very different in Greek than it is to Hebrews. Here's what I mean by that. The Greek concept of peace is the absence of war. If you're not at war, then what? You're at peace. We get that. I mean, we would describe relationships like that. Oh, well, there's no fight happening in this relationship, or there's no tension here, so it's at peace. It's kind of this either-or thing. Uh, it also could be like, you know, hostilities have ended, and so there's like this space now that exists out in society. There's law and order. There is peace, not war. So our idea in peace is really, or our idea in English is really similar to the Greeks. It's the absence of hostilities. It's an inner tranquility, right? It's like the state of mind. Oh, I'm at peace. And if we were to describe this as a, uh, in graphic terms, I was reading an article this week that described this. Our idea of peace in visual terms is like it's a point inside of us. Oh, I'm at peace, right? Or it's a line. You're either at war or you're at peace. Pick a side. So it's a point or a line. You want to know how the Hebrews would have thought of shalom? It's a circle. It's a circle with you in the middle. And at every point of contact between you and other people or you and the existing world, if you're experiencing shalom, it means that those relationships, uh, there's, uh, you're related to them justly. There's a sense of righteousness and justice surrounding you in your whole circle. That's like on a whole new level, isn't it? That's shalom. That's peace. 250 times the Old Testament uses the word shalom. Sometimes as a greeting, sometimes as a way to describe a relationship that's free of conflict, yes. But more than two-thirds of the time, shalom is speaking of a well-being that only comes from God. 
well-being in the widest, most possible sense of the word. It would be kind of like a human flourishing. That's what shalom is. Shalom. So in Numbers, Bible verse that Angela quoted just here a few minutes ago. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. It's this overwhelming sense of flourishing and well-being. It's a gift that only comes from God. And so the one that Yahweh sent, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, shalom makers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, One Bible scholar, Dale Bruner, he says, we can almost translate that word peacemaker with another word, whole makers. And if you think about wholeness, and that idea is pretty different from our idea of peace. We think of peace as inner tranquility, you know, like I need to go to a therapist. We think of peace as, oh, it's the absence of conflict or, or war. I, I need to get a mediator or a diplomat. But peacemaking, in the biblical sense, refers to wholeness of myself and others. It's to people experiencing brokenness in their life, broken relationships, broken families, broken friendships, broken promises, broken hearts. Maybe that's why Jesus says those people, the peacemakers, will be called the children of God. The children of God. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The children of God. And yet we know as children, you know, as our parents and our kids, Like, we look like one another, don't we? At least most of the time. The Bible says we're made in God's image. We're a reflection of him. That's why Jesus says, maybe, the peacemakers would be called the children of God. You know, if we're made in God's image, and God's the one who can restore us to wholeness, then maybe, just maybe, we can reflect God in our own lives, in our circle with others. So peacemaking starts with Jesus. God's the only one who can restore us to that kind of wholeness. It's the gift of salvation, yes, but it's in relational terms. In Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul writes, for he himself is our peace. He's talking about Jesus. He himself is our peace. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. The hostility between us, the hostility between God, the hostility between individuals and groups of other people. I mean, Ephesians 2 is talking about grace and unity and wholeness that human beings can find, shalom that we can experience with one another that only comes through Jesus. Through his death on the cross, Jesus brings us shalom, wholeness. He brings us peace with God, peace around our circle of humanity. When you start to read the Bible with this mindset, this isn't just referring to, referring to some kind of thing that I get inside of me, peace, or it's the absence of conflict out here, but this is a sense of wholeness. It really changes things. I mean, Jesus, he's with his disciples at the Last Supper. He tells them he's going to go away so that the Father can send the Holy Spirit, and then he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
What if we heard those words brand new today? Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus gives us, leaves us his peace. And so every time we see one of those political ads in the next three days, remind yourself, oh, these people are just angry and afraid, much like I am. But instead of making an idol out of government or political parties or some other group of people that I think should fix it, instead of doing that, I'm going to look to Christ. He gives me his shalom. And if I'm truly made in his image and healed in that reflection of him, maybe I can make my way around my own circle in my home, my friends, my family, my neighbors, my workplace, my school, my grocery store. I can extend Christ's shalom everywhere I go. Peacemaking may start with Jesus, but it continues through us. We're his children. We reflect him. And if we have a peacemaking Savior, then we do the same. We share the gift of Christ's shalom, his wholeness with other people, over and over and over again in the New Testament. You'll see things like this. The followers of Jesus admonished towards peace. Jesus, or the, the writers, they're not just saying be nice to everyone. They're talking about shalom and extending his wholeness. Uh, Colossians 3.15, we're called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Hebrews 12.14, we're to pursue peace. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Romans 12.18, I mean, I just picked, these are like three of a, a bunch. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. You start to see the picture emerging. Bible scholar Scott McKnight writes, the peacemaker is the person whom Jesus blesses, seeks to reconcile, not by pretending there aren't any differences or suppressing them. The peacemaker creates peace by creating love of the other that transcends differences to permit the other people to join them. So in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginner's guide, if you read the rest of it, you could say that peacemaking is the theme here. Jesus talks about controlling your anger. Jesus talks about being faithful in marriage. Jesus talks about loving your enemy. Next level stuff. He talks about not judging others. How on earth could we do that in Jesus? Well, we can do it because of the Holy Spirit's inside of us. We can do it because we're supposed to love God, love others. We're supposed to be servants to, I mean, put others first. I mean, what's the whole foot washing thing that Jesus does? This is the foundation of peacemaking. And so this week, as we walk around about our world, we're going to see all those political ads. And we can have a different response. We can remind ourselves that, you know, on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, God's still in charge. He's still in control, no matter what happens. The next time we get in a fight with our spouse, because I know none of you that ever happens, right? You take a deep breath. 
You listen. You try to be a peacemaker. Maybe there's some underlying issue here that hasn't ever been addressed or resolved. Maybe instead of being defensive, and I need to hear these words myself. (laughs) Just yesterday, right? (laughs) What if instead I was humble? What if instead I was transparent? What if instead I decided to be willing to work together? That's peacemaking. Peacekeeping is just putting frosting over it so that it doesn't boil over. Peacemaking is harder to do. Peacemaking is not easy, but it's possible. It's possible because we have the nuclear reactor power of the Holy Spirit inside of us that's transforming us to do things differently as we did yesterday. And even if we mess up, we own it. We say we're sorry. We ask forgiveness. We ask for God to forgive us. We try again. That's peacemaking. It's not easy, but it's possible. It means looking at our circle of influence and friends, the people connected to us, caring about them, letting God's shalom extend through us to others. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, we can't get away with anything, can't we? You truly do see and know all about us. And yet you still love us. Every time we discover something broken in our own heart, you don't climb back up on the cross and say, oh, it's time to die again. No, you died once and for all, for all of our messed up brokenness, for all of our past mistakes, future mistakes. And that's not a license to do anything we want. That's meant to put us in a, in a state of awe and gratefulness. We're so thankful, Lord. So continue to heal us and put us back together again, Lord. We want to experience your shalom, your peace, a well-being, a wholeness that can only be given to, to us by you. Help us to lean into that, Lord. Help us to look at the circle of friends and family and coworkers and strangers and whoever we might run into, Lord. Let us be a reflection of who you are. You are a peacemaker. Reflect that through us, Lord, in our daily life. We ask this in the power and in the name of Jesus.